Welcome to a brand new episode of Seize the Moment podcast. And today we want to welcome back a very special guest. Uh, today we have on Sky Cleary. Uh, she's a philosopher and writer. She teaches at Columbia University, Barnard College, and the Cindy University of New York, and is the author of Existentialism and Romantic Love and co-editor of How to Live a Good Life. Her writing has appeared in the Paris Review, Aeon, the Times Literary Supplement, TED-Ed, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and among other outlets. She's won the 2017 New Philosopher Writers Award and was a 2021 McDowell Fell Fellow. Her newest book, available everywhere on August 16th, is called How to Be Authentic, Simone de Beauvoir, and the Quest for Fulfillment. Welcome back, Sky. Thank you, Alan, and thank you, Leon. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And so to start off with a quote from Sky's book, Sky wrote, Beauvoir's philosophy teaches us that we can't become authentic until everyone is free, because any freedom that relies on oppression is morally flawed. But she also teaches us how to live and become authentic in the midst of a complex and uncertain world. Every moment contains possibilities for grasping our situation, creating ourselves, and connecting with others as authentic friends. This is the process of authenticity, to continue creating our essence as we engage with others in the struggle to construct our shared world. There is a huge amount of pressure to maintain the status quo, but Beauvoir shows we use many bad faith reasons to justify our unwillingness to fight oppression. Many of these justifications are based on mystifications. It's easy to slide into apathy, to go with the flow, to accept the just-so stories that tell us that our situation is destined by nature and tradition. Mm. These stories serve oppressors, reserving peace, harmony, and happiness for a select few. Yet to surrender our agency in the face of these lies violates our authenticity. It's important to recognize and understand these excuses so that we can challenge people to reflect on their beliefs. Mm. To know when to still oppress or to be complicit is to act inauthentically. I love that, man. Brilliant. Just phenomenal <laughs> writing. So can you tell us before before we even get into the philosophy of Simone de Beauvoir, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became interested in it? Sure thing. Uh, so <laughs> it was, so it's been a long journey. Um, and I guess the, you know, I did study a bit of philosophy in my undergraduate degree, but I didn't really care for it back then. Um, so I went into financial markets um, and at some point I did an MBA and of all places, the MBA was where I discovered uh, the existential philosophers and Simone de Beauvoir, first of all. Um, I was in an organizational behavior lecture and the professor started talking about, kind of, I guess her PhD was in existential dynamics in the boardroom, like freedom and responsibility in the boardroom. And I was like, wow, that's so interesting. And she was talking about Beauvoir and such. And I was like, wow, okay, I need to know more about this. And so I went up to her after the lecture and I said, oh, you know, where can I learn more about this? And, and the next class, she brought me a list of you know, books that she recommended with Simone de Beauvoir on there. And the first book on the list was The Mandarins, which is Beauvoir's most famous, um, well, it's it's her most famous novel and it won the this um, Prix Goncourt in France, which is like the highest literary award. And I was just hooked. Um, and one of the reasons I was hooked was because at the time I was facing a lot of questions about my own life. Um, for example, um, in relationships, uh, you know, I was kind of asked, wondering, you know, how much of yourself or, or your goals should you give up to be in a relationship? Um, because I was sort of starting to think about do, doing a 
starting to think about taking on a PhD. And um, then, you know, that was, uh, I guess, <laughs> you know, there was some tension between that and, and having a partner. And so I, I started having these questions. Well, you know, how, how is it possible to be in a relationship and be, uh, you know, love someone, but also, you know, want to have my own career? And I mean, Beauvoir was talking about exactly the same sorts of questions, you know, in her relationship with Jean-Paul Sartre. And she ended up having, you know, an open relationship with him because they wanted to give each other as much freedom as possible, um, which was varying in its, um, you know, it wasn't always successful and they did, uh, they did have a lot of problems in that. But the point is that, you know, they, and of course, Beauvoir or, or, and the other existential philosophers didn't have all the answers. But what I loved about them was that they had a language and a sort of a, a framework and a way of thinking through these questions, even though I realized it was up to me to make those decisions myself. And there was no easy answer, no, no quick fix or shortcut. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so when we're thinking about authenticity, and you would say that essentially there's this kind of contrast between authenticity and the status quo, or would you say that that's a bit too of a simplistic conception of it? I, yeah, so when when you say status quo, I'm thinking that, you know, so I was on this, this road, I was, you know, had my career planned out, you know, I was, you know, trying to fulfill all the expectations that other people had of me and right. fulfill this um, idea of, of what success meant and, you know, have the boyfriend and, you know, plan to get married and have babies. And so I was sort of on this, I guess, if that's what you mean by status quo, you mean a, a defined path. And I, and I, yeah, the um, Simone de Beauvoir sort of started, um, had some ideas for thinking through, through that and helped me to realize, or to, I guess, become more, conscious and, and aware of of these pressures around me and help me to think through okay what was I doing um, because I wanted to do it and what was I doing because it was what was expected of me and so authenticity I found from Beauvoir is that process of separating out the goals you have from for yourself like being for yourself and the other dimension of your being which is being for others and you know we need as you read out in the excerpt at the beginning you know life is a combination of both of being for yourself and being for others and authenticity is a process of navigating that space in between and making choices and not being a, you know an a-hole <laughs> i don't know if i'm allowed to swear here but you know, <laughs> not just this is the podcast to curse on um you know because if you're just you know so obsessed with your own path and doing what you want to do and like screw everybody else then you're you're a narcissist or you're just you know self-obsessed and self-involved and or an egoist and that was not what um Beauvoir's notion of authenticity was at all you know that's she used the example of the Marquis de Sade as someone who was just doing his own thing screw everybody else and she's like okay he may be authentic from a you know superficial perspective but you know Beauvoir's I, philosophy and concept of authenticity takes into account that we exist 
in situation with other people and other people are around us and we need to take them into account um, because our existence only has meaning you know by interacting with them and the world right and it's so interesting because people often have this misconception of authenticity as your like your impulsive side so i often hear from patients where they'll say something along the lines of well you know when i like if, let's say we think about it in the freudian construct right so you have like the id you know which is like the impulsive side then you have the superego which is like your conscious and then obviously the ego kind of mediates between the two so i would have patients tell me well you know they're like the impulsive side is the real you right so it's like it's when you start thinking about what to do that that's not you that's the culture that's society very freudian right it's sort of civilization imposing on you what you're supposed to do. But you're actually saying, based on Beauvoir's philosophy, that that's actually different. It's that impulsive side that may want to please everybody and may want to be part of society for safety, uh, let's say, you know, kind of protection, obviously, you to, you know, to up one's status, let's say, to be, again, you know, a big part of the group or an important part of the group. But it's actually the kind of forethought and it's the part of the self that says, or that asks rather, who am I really? And then kind of as, you know, it goes through the processes and makes the decision, that's actually what authenticity is, as opposed to just your impulsive side, which like Marquis de Sade just kind of just does whatever he wants. It doesn't really necessarily think about the consequences. Exactly. And I hadn't thought of it that way before. That's really uh, interesting looking at it from that, that psychological perspective that, yeah, we we do have, I mean, of course we have impulses. We we are animals and, you know, we have certain, certain drives. But as you say, we also have um ideas imposed on us for by society and culture that may be yeah either impulsive or you know I think um, maybe an, that philosophers might call it like pre-reflective like we're sort of doing it without thinking about it um, so yeah our animal impulses plus you know all that stuff that's piled on us you know or um, actually Jonathan Weber who wrote Rethinking Existentialism calls it um, sedimentation. So yeah, sure, we have our animal nature, plus we have all this sediment that we collect as, as we grow up. But yeah, Beauvoir's idea of authenticity was saying, okay, well, let's try and be conscious and aware of all those things. But to be authentic is to transcend those facts of our existence and to project ourselves into the future towards self-chosen goals and so it's that forward-looking aspect that is is critically important in authenticity so it's not when you when you said oh who am I you know that's the usual kind of oh we've got to look inside ourselves to find who our authentic self is whereas the was like well yeah okay that's that's part of it to understand our facticity the facts of our existence to understand you know what we're you know um to reflect on those pre-reflective ideas, but also to understand our animal impulses. But authenticity is also that kind of extrospection. Um, and it's, so it's looking outwards. It's looking, you know, where what our intentions are, what our goals are. And this is, you know, I'd be interested, Leon, from your pers psychological perspective, you know, Beauvoir says that, you know, sure, whether some of our actions, so whether some of our past, but we're also presently choosing things, but we're also our intentions, you know, how we project ourselves into the future. And so authenticity is kind of looking at this arc of our lives and looking at, you know, who we, who we are, not just who we are, which is important, but who are we becoming and, and where are we going? I love that. Oh, it's very interesting yeah, because, I mean, when you look at the sort of the mainstream perspective on what 
people take to be authenticity. It's usually that literature of, you know, just be yourself. When you're yourself, you're being authentic, right? Or, or like you mentioned um, in the introduction to the book, uh, Brene Brown, right? Like letting go of who you think you are, right? Which essentially it sounds right, but it doesn't take into consideration this sort of balance, right? Not just of letting go of who you think you might be, of society's expectations on you, but also taking into consideration how are you how how are your decisions impacting others right how will it impact your future self are you actually creating your own or designing your own uh path in life or are you uh merely not at the cause but at the effect of what's happening like you're this this uh being that just reacts to everything that's happening as opposed to maybe proactively taking some sort of step to uh design or have some impact on what trajectory your life takes. It's, it's very fascinating. Yeah. 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 And it's, that's the, you know, um, Alan, you've hit on something that I think is really important in Beauvoir's thinking, which is that, um, you know, not looking, you know, to say, um, you know, just be yourself. Like what, what is the self? Like how, like how do you even look for your true self and, and, how will you recognize it if you find it? And so it's a very abstract sort of concept. And I think Brene Brown is absolutely right when she says, you know, it's about letting go of who you think you're supposed to be. Yeah, but how, what is that other half of, of who, who you are? Or And mm. what I love about Beauvoir's idea is that she's very much focused on that becoming and authenticity is a creative process. So she's like, okay, well, let's, sure think about the facts of our lives and but what we're going to try and look for is that window of freedom that we can sort of squeeze open and and make choices for ourselves and you know and, and so it's very I love you know Beauvoir's forward kind of forward-looking orientation Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so to touch on the nature and nurture debate, you're pretty much your argument says something along the lines of it's sort of an excuse or a just so story when we say, well, we're like this and we can't change and it's all too idealistic. We should just give up. Yeah. So that's bad faith <laughs> um, in existential terms, like the opposite of authenticity. Yeah. Just to say, oh, we we have like I have no freedom. I have no power. It's just that's just the, the way it is. Um, and you know, there's a story, I mean, Beauvoir has a lot of fictional works, as, as I know you know, um, and there's one story in, um, it's a book called When Things of the Spirit Come First, mm-hmm. and I, I, lo- I do love this book. It wasn't popular during her time, and in fact, she really struggled to get it published, and it wasn't published. She wrote it when she was young, but it wasn't published until, um, you know, much later in her life, because the publishers was, were like, Oh, this is really depressing. Like, no, no one wants to hear about this. And base, but basically, what it was was an analysis of bad faith. Mm-hmm. And there's one of the there's a character whose name is um, oh, I'm blanking on the name now. <laughs> Sorry, um, but he, Dennis, Dennis, oh, Denny mm-hmm. in French, I guess. But yeah, so Dennis is this guy who Leon embodies what you were saying. Like, he's just like going with the flow. He's like, you know just beholden to his animal impulses like he's just having sex with whoever he wants he yeah he he seduces this woman and then you know ends up marrying her because it's sort of what you do but you know he doesn't take this commitment seriously at all and 
then he just you know ends up you know sleeping with other people and then seducing her sister and running off with her sister and so it's just and stealing all their money and so it's just he's just like no you know I just have no control over it's just I'm just doing whatever and this is a very nihilistic attitude you know the idea that we have no control nothing really matters um and Bufar's like that is like being a rock well I don't know if she says it's exactly like being, but think about you know a, a rock just is it's it gets pushed around by I don't know the ocean or the wind or whatever and it's just it has it makes no choices for itself whereas humans when one of the things that makes us human is that we can choose and we can kind of change our life and this was incredibly important for Beauvoir um, because it's it makes us a being for itself as opposed to a being in itself so being for itself is conscious and can can change its life however you know, of course, like we were talking before about there are facts of our lives. You know, she's not saying, oh, we can choose whatever we want. No, because we live in a situation with other people. And one of the reasons, one of the things that makes Beauvoir particularly unique is that she acknowledges um, oppression. And she acknowledges that there are structures in place that prevent people from, you know, stretching into the future and, and seizing their lives and, and making choices about the, how to become authentic for themselves. And so the idea of kind of rebellion and pushing back against oppressive structures is really integral to, to Beauvoir's idea. And so it's, and it's bad faith, coming back to your original question, Leon, you know, it's bad faith not to acknowledge that, that there are these structures in our lives, which prevent us from choosing. Wow. Yeah. That reminds me of something we discussed recently on the show. Um, sort of this relates i think uh nietzsche for instance uh he had this concept of something called um the nobleman and the man of resentment and essentially he the way he defined it is the the man of resentment was someone whose uh, existence is at, he lives as a no to existence in, in terms of like everything that occurs he just sort of reacts to everything that happens he's again like just borrow what i mentioned before he's at the effect of everything as opposed to at the cause and then the nobleman is one who sort of proactively chooses maybe what direction uh their life takes and what's interesting is the one who says no to everything gets their identity their their ego their conceptions of life or even just the actions that they take from just allowing whatever uh takes place to just take course and just react to it so that's very interesting you, you cannot you can most certainly not be authentic in that sort of a conception right and can we just say that that mostly comes from a place of fear and denial where you're just sort of giving up because you're afraid to make choices and take responsibility for your life yeah well said mm -hmm. <laughs> but, and, and you know i think it's um you know fascinating you bring up nietzsche and i think beauvoir had read a lot of nietzsche even though she didn't um kind of go go too deeply into what he said and she had a lot of problems with what he said you know because he was um you know, misogynistic things. Yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I think there is a lot of similarity between Nietzsche's, um, I guess, Ubermensch and idea of, you know, Nietzsche says, or Zarathustra, I guess, says, become who you are. And so it's this idea of becoming and overcoming yourself and, and reaching, reaching beyond, you know, the given. Okay. That's very similar to, to Beauvoir's kind of method. 
the big difference is, whereas Nietzsche thought that we should be transcending towards the ideal of the Ubermensch, Beauvoir was mm. like, no, transcend to what it, to, towards whatever you want. Like you, it's up to you to choose the goals for your, your life. And Leon, yeah, it, I'm sure it does come from, from fear and, and, and denial when, when we um, kind of turn away from, you know, making, taking risks in our life because transcending is scary. Yep. And, you know, Beauvoir talks about this in The Second Sex, um, mm. which was her most famous book written in 1949. And she was basically an analysis of why women have been secondary to men. And one of the reasons is, as you say, Leon, you know, there's there's a, a fear. And, okay, so men have posted, men have asserted themselves as kind of sovereign subjects and, you know, convince women that it's in their best interest to be secondary to men. And so we've sort of evolved into this, this, this structure where, you know, women challenging the status quo um, is, it's, it's a risk to do that. And, you know, mm -hmm. remember Beauvoir was writing in the 1940s where, um, the women's participa participation in the labor force was much lower. There was no such thing as no-fault divorce. Um, you know, women weren't allowed to own property. They weren't allowed to establish credit. And so this, Beauvoir saw all of these things, you know, keeping women secondary. And if women were trying to break out of, you know, that kind of structure, there were heavy costs to pay, like from a mm -hmm. social and, and financial perspective. And which is one of the reasons why Beauvoir was like, well, you know, one of the first steps to towards liberation is for everybody to be able to be financially independent. I mean, it's not a, it's the necessary but not sufficient condition to, for, for authenticity, but, you know, you can't, how can you be authentic if you're, you know, stuck at, at home as a housewife, you know, minding all, all these children and, you know, okay, there may be opportunities for authenticity, but she, she thought that in, in the larger sense of life, you know, those people's options were so restricted that you know it, it basically suffocated their their possibilities to become authentic right and also it took incredible incredible bravery to even assert themselves in any way possible especially in the context of the 1940s or earlier uh domestic abuse or, or just even abusing women in general was way more accepted in society like even if you look at older movies uh take it in the states let's say uh, sl slapping women or beating them was just like uh i mean i hate to say that it was socially accepted but yeah that was something people were used to uh, seeing in theater in um in movies and also um i think even it was uh when guys used to talk uh back in the day they also would say you know they would condone beating their wives to each other i believe just to yeah remember the know. honeymooners yeah, yeah so which go. is like you know mm. one of the greatest com comedies of all time and it is hilarious but yeah that whole like the quote to the moon alice people are like yeah this is great and it's like wait do you guys know what he's actually saying i haven't seen it you've oh my oh so oh my oh my god wow so okay not to get into this too much so for, jackie gleason was like the frank sinatra well he i mean they lived in the same time so but he was the flight the frank sinatra of hollywood and so the honeymooners was the most popular show like literally even still i think of all time so i also remember i mean in the 50s there were what three channels right but you would literally have like 50 million people a, a night watching the show and so jackie gleason comedic genius he was actually a really good guy in real life but the show itself was like pretty misogynistic so you have Alice, who's like this housewife, who's actually brilliant. 
happened. And then you have Jackie Gleason, who's sort of like a dope, but he's like street smart and like pretty conniving and sort of cunning in his own way. And so a lot of the jokes were literally geared toward her, where like, so she would say something that would upset him and he'd be like, Why I oughta. or every time that she would upset him, he would say, to the moon, Alice. And to the moon literally means I'm going to hit you so hard that you're going to fly to outer space to the moon. Yeah. And people are like, this is hilarious. And she wouldn't even take him seriously on the show. She'd be like, oh, that's just Ralph. Wow. Yeah. And, yeah. And yeah, the context of, of comedy, uh, sure. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Honestly, that's the point of comedy, right? To sort of, uh, to, you know, make fun of what uh, could be sacred, right? In order to maybe take some of the pain out of it. So, uh, I mean, making fun of probably the abuse might have been what that was for. But still, even then, even before that, it was just, you know, man. If it were a different time, I would agree with you. But at that time, that was actually like super prevalent. So when they they weren't necessarily making fun of it, I think they were more normalizing it. Well, maybe both, maybe both, not to be black and white. To be fair, yeah. So anyway, back to the main point, though. Yeah, it, it to take to take a such like a risk to say, you know, I don't want to uh, follow these norms anymore. I don't want to necessarily get married. I don't want to necessarily uh, have a child. I want to work on my career. There are these things that I want that, you know, I don't want to do exactly what society wants for me or what my partner wants for me. And uh, yeah, so a lot of respect to those women. I mean, now, now it's, you know, of course, uh, still there are people who are fighting for uh, equal rights, equal pay. Um, and it, it's not all equal right now. Right. But the things that people had to go through before a lot of respect to them because that was incredibly hard to challenge those norms. Oh, and especially to tag on to that. Yeah. So Sky, how do you think Simone de Beauvoir did this all on in the kind of midst of occupied France? Because, you know, we're thinking about like these really horrific moments in history. That was one of them. So how did she, I mean, I can imagine somebody just becoming nihilistic at that point. Like, how did she find the resolve to do that? Yeah, and I think facing this kind of abyss of a world like full of horror, um, mm. was part of her motivation for, you know, really like trying to find an antidote to nihilism. You know, how do you keep going in a world where, you know, millions of, of people are being murdered? It's, and, you know, she had, she um, started up a resistance group, um, mm. but then she saw how people in other resistance groups were, were going missing and were getting arrested. And so they sort of disbanded that. Um, and, yeah, it was she. I mean, she lived through World War One and World War Two. She was a child during World War One and in Paris when you know the bombs were were falling. Um, and yeah, I think her whole project is like, well, how do we? Okay, back to Nietzsche's question um, that you know God is dead. So she thought, okay, if it, she was also religious, she grew up um, you know very religious Catholic and wanted to be a nun at one point, but then. During her teenage years, she kind she realized she's like either either God is dead or God isn't paying attention or it doesn't matter in the, in the context of of what's going on in the world, mm. and so she's like, well, well, how do we live? And she toys with nihilism throughout a lot of her her works, and in fact, she also. Um, talks about suicide, especially in the ethics of ambiguity, where she says that, you know, it's it's understandable that someone might want to, um, you know, die of suicide. It's it's completely reasonable. But 
the thing is, we're, we're here, we're, we're alive, we're on earth. We don't know if we're ever going to get another life. And so what we need to do is acknowledge that, okay, we'll try and find a reason to live, try and find, you know, because there is a lot of beauty in the world. There, there's love, there's friendship, there's beautiful sunsets. And, you know, she lived in, in Paris, you know, Paris is, is gorgeous. And so, you know, I think one of the things that really kept her going was, was love and, and friendship. Mm, I love that. Mm -hmm. And then so... Well, so, and then from her understanding, yours, it, obviously kind of going back to your book, in her understanding, friendship is not so much about what the person is trying to take away as much as it is also about respecting the other person. So all of, so all of us kind of struggle with figuring out what a sort of balanced friendship looks like and sort of what how even romantically speaking, obviously this applies too, but what we can actually or what we're supposed to be in and what we can take away from relationships. So can you tell us a little bit about that? So what does Simone de Beauvoir think about friendship and what does she actually mean by sort of respecting the other person's authenticity too. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I think is really helpful in understanding Beauvoir's idea of uh, friendship is this notion of intersubjectivity, which is basically mm -hmm. what, what you explained. It's, it's um, mutual recognition of one another's freedom. And it's, she thought that this acknowledgement is, is really like the fundamental like core of all ethical relationships. Which is like, you know, throughout human history, you know, uh, humans have tended to relate to one another, you know, with, with antagonism and wanting to dominate and, and possess one another. And she's like, why is that? Why, why did we develop this culture of, of possession instead of like seeing one another as potential friends? And, so what she thought, you know, and she's she's a little bit on the same page as, say, Nietzsche and Aristotle in this, in that she thought, you know, friendship is sort of the highest ideal of, of human relationships. Um, and so, so there was actually a book. Did you read the book that came out just in the last year or so called um, The Inseparables by, mm -hmm. by Simone de Beauvoir? Yeah, it was a book. It was just like sort of a long lost novel. And they sort of found it and published it finally. Wow. And she didn't publish it during her lifetime for a lot of potential reasons, but when we don't quite know the, the real reason, but it was all about friendship. And mm -hmm. in particular, her friendship with a, a teenage friendship with a girl called Zaza LeCoin, who she met at school at, at when they were nine. And Zaza turned up, she basically had her leg like, almost completely burned off because it caught fire, like her dress caught fire. And the Zaza was this incredible person. And she was so full of life. And Beauvoir was, was smitten immediately. And you know, they had, they were friends, like really good friends for 12 years until Zaza died. Mm -hmm. um, but I think this friendship is really core to Beauvoir's philosophy because, okay, so she'd read a lot of Hegel. I mean, so had Jean-Paul Sartre. And so Hegel's master-slave dialectic is the, I know I talked about this last time I was on your show, but um, it's the idea that, you know, we, you know, two consciousnesses, two consciousnesses meet and, you know, there's sort of this struggle for, for domination. One person trying to kind of assert their authority over the other one. And Hegel's idea was like, okay, you've got to 
try and find some kind of equilibrium or, or synthesis to, to have like a, a constructive relationship. And so Beauvoir kind of takes on this, this structure of relationships too. And she's like, well, authentic friendship or authentic relationships are where you give up that, that desire to, to possess one another or to have the upper hand over someone. And now you might be thinking, well, no, all, all relationships aren't like that. But it's true that a lot of a lot of relationships are like that as well. And um, so this idea of her idea of authentic friendship is trying to transcend beyond the antagonism, um, acknowledge that the other person is is a subject just like I'm a subject and their feelings matter and that they have goals just like I do and that fostering that kind of respect and giving each other space is is key to to authenticity as well. Mm. Yeah, and thinking about just clinically speaking, so that's actually an aspect of narcissism where so sometimes on the one hand, people who are hardly narcissistic look for partners that are like the best and, you know, sort of the best that society has to offer. But sometimes it depends on the ego strength, but sometimes they actually look for people who are they would see or perceive as being beneath them because the idea is that I can control this person. So if this person is so grateful for me, if they can't live without me, if they know they'll never find anybody better than me, then I'm the best that they can do. And I feel secure in that. Whoa. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a, so it's actually interesting how narcissism works because it goes either way. So sometimes again they look for the person who's like the best, and then sometimes they look for people who are beneath them. But usually, by the way, even when they look for people who are the best, there's still a way for them to explain it in a way as like you're beneath me. So like let's say you know with Trump and Melania, if I had to guess, the way that he would probably explain it is that like, well, I'm a genius. Like who the hell is she? She's just some like like looker. Like she doesn't. They're dime a dozen. There are plenty of great looking women out there. You know, it just happens to be that she's mine. Uh, but like so there's still a way to explain it as being inferior, but that's what narcissism is. It's this idea that you should be grateful for me because of my status, because of who I am and essentially because of who I, what I have to offer. And you don't even kind of, you can't compete with that. So definitely not an authentic friendship or a relationship. Yeah. That, that sounds, yeah, exactly. Very similar to what Beauvoir was talking about for sure. Mm -hmm. Did you want to say something? Well, no. Uh, well, there's a there's actually a passage, or rather, there's a um, an excerpt from your book at the end of the chapter for friendship that I was interested in uh, reading. Sure. Uh, that relates to this. Go for um, it. So, uh, while we have to let go of the fact that we never fully know what other people think about us, and let go of the desire to recover the lost fragment of our being that the other holds, relating to friends authentically calls for a conversion, renouncing self centeredness to nurture intersubjectivity. All human connections are fragile and precarious, but within every, with, within every one of them lies a possibility for friendship. Francois treats uh, Xavier as an inconvenience in her life who needs to be annihilated so Francois can feel more comfortable. But Emma, Zaza, and the incarcerated students I met reveal possibilities beyond hostility and towards reciprocity, towards authentic friendship, and towards becoming united on a grander scale. So yeah, that concept of of uh, reciprocity, right? Of 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 caring about uh, someone else besides yourself. Mm -hmm. I mean, that seems to lie at you know at, at the core of what an authentic friendship actually is not necessarily seeking to gain something right and by the way going back into human nature many people would say well it's just human nature to be self-centered like you're obviously always going to care about yourself more than everybody else so but you would say that that's just that is a just so story that that's not probably true right that it's like you can actually create or cultivate a friendship or relationship where at the very least you would care about the person as much as you care about yourself 
Right. Yeah. Beauvoir would say, yeah, where we have the power to transcend that, even if that is like part of our facticity or part of our, you know, genetic makeup, you know, the human, I guess, challenge is, is to, to overcome that and to try and create um, friendly relationships because sure there's, you know, we, she, she would say, you know, we're not, the self isn't predetermined like that. You know, there's a lot more flexibility than perhaps we would, we would imagine. And in fact, neuroscience is finding, you know, the same sort of things that, sure, we have impulses, but we seem to be able to override our impulses. And, and maybe, you know, there's a lot of talk about brain elasticity, that maybe we can even train our brains in new ways. And so this is important for friendship because she says, you know, back to what I mentioned earlier, you know, how from an existential and from Beauvoir's perspective, we are, you know, a combination of being for ourselves and, and being for others. And we need to acknowledge other people because they are a fact of our existence. You know, we're thrown here on earth together and, and we coexist and, and they're there. And so living is, is a tension um, between, you know, being for ourselves and, and being for others and, you know, trying to find that, that sort of harmony um, to, to being with others and try to find ways to be cooperative and, and constructive instead of trying to, you know, grab more of the pie for ourselves. You know, Beauvoir's idea is like the world, sorry, there are things that, that are like a pie and we're all trying to grab you know, bits of pie for ourselves, but she's like, no, like we need to think more expansively. She said something like the, you know, the, the I can't remember, but you know, the, we, we all, the ideal is for us to be able to, to stretch into an open sky. And she, so she's like, you know, it's like, if we can, you know, build solidarities and, and be friends, then we, you know, the, the future opens up more for, for all of us. Um, and but that doesn't mean that we should you know get rid of all um all antagonism because she's like she was a bit like Nietzsche again and thinking that constructive criticism is is also important because if you're friends with someone who just tolerates everything you say then you know you're not really learning or growing or developing in any meaningful way but you know being with others calls our being into question in important ways and so but we've just got to try and find you know uh constructive ways to to maintain that tension rather than you know getting just angry and, and hostile <laughs> yeah and there's a sort of common misconception that narcissists are super happy so the idea is like if you're just sort of a uh, let's say if there's kind of gluttony in you're just pretty much you're kind of like a, a, not a carnivore um if you're just pretty much like this rapacious person who's just taking and taking and taking the kind of misunderstanding is that that person must be happy but actually not so people with narcissistic personality disorder are it's highly correlated they for the most part have severe depression on the other hand so they're really good at hiding it i mean that's kind of what the outward perfectionism is about but again the misconception is that well this person seems to have so much and they seem to be taking up so much space so much time uh so much resource or many resources so therefore they must be happy because they have everything that the world has to offer not true man and so a lot of times the reason why those people are, de are depressed is because they ruin a ton of their relationships and really it seems like at the core and i'm just now i'm not i don't want to get into too much of the details but to just look at that just that one fact the fact that there's a high correlation between narcissism and then severe major depression uh, or at the very least moderate to severe major depression 
that must mean that intimacy and relationships are at the core of what makes us happy. So it's not things, possessions, which is obviously a cliche, but true, but you can see it from the data, at least that aspect of the data, that it can't be that it's just doing and living for ourselves and sucking up status and climbing corporate ladders or even climbing up, let's say, you know, social media ladders or whatever, gaining followers and becoming an influencer. That's not the stuff that makes us happy. Yeah, and I think Beauvoir would have agreed with you. And she does actually have a chapter on the narcissist in, in The Second Sex. And, and she says it's, you know, a narcissism is kind of an escape from facing up to taking responsibility for our lives because she's like, it's, it's setting up an ideal image of ourselves and treating it like a God and subordinating ourselves to, to this God and, you know, making this, this image, you know, the central meaning in our life. And the problem is it's, it's based on, you know, what, what you said, Leon, that, you know, we're trying to create this, this image of ourselves. That's like, um, you know, kind of a very cohesive and perfect being, which is like, you know, none of us are, are like that. You know, we're all very, we're fragmented, we're, we're evolving, we're, we're, you know, all of us are all over the place and none of us have it all together. Uh, and so, yeah, she says that that's, um, you know, kind of a, a denial of our freedom. Wow, I love that. Right. So if you think about automaticity, I mean, narcissism really is that because it's sort of like you can't escape as, you know, Alan would probably agree your ego. Right. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, uh, depending how you identify, I mean, essentially, um, an aspect of the ego is you identify with a, a belief or an idea and anything that sort of comes into conflict with that tends to resist it. And um, it's this false self. Right. And uh, that also keeps you from being authentic. Right. Right. Um, one thing I wanted to ask you about, actually, because I was just thinking about sure. this for the last few minutes. Um in the context of uh, marriage, right? Uh, when we're thinking about authenticity. So, I mean, I mean, for me personally, right? Uh, I and Leon as well. We have a sort of a Russian background. I'm not a Russian, Ukrainian, whatever, Georgian, whatever. <laughs> anyway, so our our, our folks, uh, they really want us to get married. They always push that thing and have kids and have kids. Where's your kids? I want a kid. Mm -hmm. I want a grandson tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, are you getting married? You know, that kind of thing. And I'm sure this is very relatable to a lot, a lot of people uh, listening for sure. And um, how do you, like, how would Simone de Beauvoir uh, in the context of, you know, marriage, how can we be authentic? Um, it, might, it might sound like an obvious sort of question, but I, I'm actually curious about it because the, on one hand, there's sort of these societal expectations. Another hand, I mean, you would guilt think, tripping. Sure. <laughs> But then there's another side of you maybe that does does consider it, but then it begs the question like, do I naturally want this or is it just because of these expectations that I, I make myself want this? Um, yeah, well. Yeah, well, Beauvoir would be very <laughs> suspicious of the term natural um, right. because she's like so much of what is sold to us as natural is is absolutely not including like marriage and she was extremely skeptical of marriage um she says um you know it is it is said that marriage diminishes a man and you know that's true but it almost always destroys a woman now I think things have evolved since the 1940s um but she she continued to believe that marriage is a trap and because it was set up by men um, in men's interest and keeps women 
you know, second in, in, you know, as the second sex. Mm-hmm. However, I will say she was also of the view that, you know, it is possible to, or it might be possible to create an authentic marriage. Um, but the problem is that marriage comes with so much baggage uh, of gender roles. You know, it's like, you know, sure, women um, are, you know, expected to have children. And, you know, if, you know, our society is such that, you know, it's usually the woman who stay, not always, but often stays home because of, you know, the gender pay gap and, you know, the way, especially in the US, the way um, parental leave is structured, um, you know, kind of pushes the responsibility towards a woman. And so that means that women end up taking kind of a backseat in their career and and men don't. And so there are all these, you know, kind of compounding challenges to to marriage. Um, But, you know, she also says that, you know, if people can, can, you know, marriage doesn't have to be like that. It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be sexist. And if you can come together in a way that, um, you know, acknowledge that we live in a society that does support marriage. And of course, there are like thousands, or maybe not thousands, but I think there's at least a thousand um, uh, laws and, and benefits that you get if you're, if you're married, especially in the U.S., Um, So there are, you know, society is channeling us into getting married and, you know, there's, it's a tradition that that works for, for a lot of, a lot of people. It also doesn't work for a lot of people. Um, But I was like, okay, fine. If you look around and, you know, acknowledge that it's, it's perhaps a a union that you want to enter into and you're, you're aware of, of what it means and you can come to, you know, an agreement that doesn't oppress people and that doesn't fall automatically into into these, um, you know, problematic ways. And and you know, she's like, okay, maybe maybe it will be possible. And it, I mean, she says in in her chapter on marriage in the second mm-hmm. sex, she says something like, the ideal would be that each person perfectly self sufficient be attached to another by the free consent of their love alone. And so, you know, her idea was that, you know, we should be able to choose and not just be together because, you know, we signed a piece of paper one time, but be together because we want to be together and we can renew that and acknowledge that maybe maybe in the future our paths will diverge and and that's okay and mar- divorce is not going to be necessarily a fa- I mean it might be failure of the marriage but it's not a failure on our behalf because you know it's not marriage isn't an, a natural thing you know animals don't get married of other animals um you know it's a human construct mm-hmm. oh that's a great argument to a mother slash girlfriend or or a girlfriend whoops um to say you know hey simone de Beauvoir says this is inauthentic i don't want to get married that's it you know wow. the reality <laughs> yeah Sorry. i yeah I mean, the reality is that society does does support marriage in in many ways, and you know there there aren't necessarily good alternatives. Although people are, you know, marriage is in many places, you know, becoming less less of the norm. And people, so I think Beauvoir would have supported people choosing their own relationship structures and thinking about what works for them. If you live in, you know, a family that's like very supportive of that and, and you know, is pushing you into it and you say, okay, I'm going to, you know, acknowledge 
you know, the happiness that this would bring for, for all my family. And I, but I'm still going to go into this marriage on my own or on not just my own terms, but on our own terms, like with you and the other person, like coming to, to a specific agreement and, and questioning. And that's the most important thing, like questioning mm. what you're agreeing to. And, you know, Nietzsche was like, you know, you know, it's really hard to promise that you're going to love someone forever. So why do we do that in marriage vows? He's like, no, maybe you can promise the, that you're going to try to, you can promise actions. You're like, even if I don't love you anymore, I'm still going to, um, you know, act as if, if I'm in love, but you know, okay, that's a whole other path. But before I was like, you know, let's think about what we're agreeing to and acknowledge that, you know, relationships aren't, you know, just because we have a marriage certificate doesn't mean, you know, we're all sorted. It's just, it's, relationships are always always a challenge yeah man wow so and we had uh Stuart vice on the show i think about a couple of months ago we were talking about like the uses of delusion mm -hmm. and so he would essentially argue that like no man you would need to do that in order for the relationship to be romantic you would need to and so it's not to say that you're lying and you're saying to your you're saying to your partner well i want to marry you and i want to be with you forever but you kind of have to believe it yourself i mean he's like look man otherwise sort of the romance falls apart and he gave us this uh, personal story where he essentially told his girlfriend at the time she's like well like are you going to love me forever and he's like how the hell would i know that or something along those lines i don't remember the exact story and she broke up with him he's like that relationship ended and so he says look man he's like i know it's not rational but in some ways you're gonna have to kind of not just not lie not just well not lie to the person but obviously lie to yourself in a way and then also lie to the person but where i kind of struggle with women obviously in terms of dating is where like i would say like yeah let's just give it a shot and let's see where it goes people hate that man they really hate that well, it's not romantic. It's yeah, no. it doesn't fit into the romantic ideal of like being together forever. Um, no. which is what Wilva would say is a mystification. You know, it's right. a, a lie we tell ourselves. So how do we do it, right? So how do I mean I know this is a tough question to uh, to ask, but like I'm just I want to kind of start even thinking about it. Like, how do we do that? Because for me, on the one hand, I hate being irrational and I don't want to lie to myself or to another person. So and I love Stuart, phenomenal human, brilliant person. I don't want to do that. I don't want to have to lie to myself and tell myself, oh, this is gonna last forever. But also, obviously, you don't want to like stifle or even suffocate relationships that have the potential of going somewhere. And you also understand from the other person's perspective when they say, well, look, you know, I find it disrespectful when I'm with a guy I'm really in love with him and he doesn't want to marry me. I could totally get that. But it's like, but what's the middle ground when on the other hand, you're like, yeah, but I don't want to be that person to marry you. And I don't know if I'm going to love you forever, you know? Well, I mean, sorry, just what I appreciate uh, back to what you said before, uh, Sky, about taking consideration, what do you actually want? What does your partner want? Uh, can you guys discuss together what it is that uh, you know, that you guys will uh, love each other, but you don't necessarily need to sign a piece of paper. Or could you actually get married? And then it happens to, as a side effect, maybe it makes your family happy. But ultimately, you've had that discussion, you've had that introspection with your partner. And, um, I, you know, this sounds obvious, maybe, maybe to us, maybe because we're a little bit older. But I'll be honest with you, I think this is actually probably very refreshing to maybe a younger mind, if somebody younger was listening to this, mm. I'm sure, I mean, maybe on some level they've thought about this, but uh, I think the way you laid it out is is fantastic. It doesn't, the, the, this kind of way of thinking does not come obvious to a lot of people, like to really take into consideration what what do you really want as opposed to just going with the, the flow of society's expectations. Right. Sometimes, again, going back to automaticity, people get so wrapped up in the going, the daily goings on, the daily 
on whatever, yeah. whatever's happening. No, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and so they don't take the time to to think about these things. Uh, and I don't know. I I think it's just incredibly important just to have these sorts of discussions. Also, going to what you just said, I think with a partner, you would say to them. Uh, what it is you truly want out of the relationship it ain't personal i'm like it ain't personal but the thing is if i mean ideally if if they care about what you want right and you uh, do express it to them honestly they probably would have enough rapport with you to try to understand where you're coming from and have that conversation Mm -hmm. at least there's no miscommunication or misunderstanding there that's true where one person expects one thing Another person expects another, and then they don't meet somewhere in the middle. Okay. So, you know, my two cents. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great way to to um, to frame it. And you know, Beauvoir acknowledge that that we live in certain structures that rewards us for doing certain things, like getting married, and punishes us for for not getting married. And you know, Beauvoir's like, you know, it's really hard to judge other people's choices. You know, we can't judge another person's authenticity. That's that's for each of us to to decide ourselves. And it gets complicated in relationships. But you know, Alan, I think. Beauvoir would be supportive of what you recommended, like trying to be as honest as possible and and building trust with one another and understanding where each other's coming from and understanding the fears and, you know, trying to come to some sort of, you know, agreement and an arrangement but between between the two people. And, you know, Beauvoir's like, you know, what, what use is happiness if it hides the truth from me? So what, you know, happiness based on a lie is not going to be any kind of genuine uh, sort of happiness mm-hmm. and at the same time she says you know you can't you know it's it's unfair to I think bludgeon someone with an indiscreet truth so you don't want to hit people over the head with 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 the truth and and use it as a weapon so um you know because you've got to be careful about the other person's feelings um and you know this is what you know Simone de Beauvoir did it in her life you know she and Jean-Paul Sartre you know, agreed to be primary to one another and but they gave themselves freedom to be in relationships with other people and they were constantly you know navigating that that tension and it wasn't easy especially for the other lovers um and you know i got married um you know in in the throes of my my phd and learn, learning about all this and you know one of the things that my partner and i joke about is you know like oh how's it going so far so good and you know, it sounds like like it's it's flippant and it's it's kind of a joke, but also I think it's important because you know we kind of went into this uh, marriage acknowledging, yeah, acknowledging the system we're in, and you know we wanted to have a, a kid, um, and also I think for us, it, you know, everybody's got to find their own path, but for us, it helps us I think not to take each other for granted like knowing that yeah marriage isn't you know a a security like it's not going to stop the other person from leaving it's not going to stop us from choosing to leave if if it's if it stops you know working for us but it's also you know we we leapt into the decision and we're like yeah let's give this a go and let's try it and you know we're going to make mistakes but let's try and you know navigate this path together and I think that 
at least so far, so far so good, it's, it's helped. Um, but yeah, everybody, Bobo's point is that everybody's got to come up with, with their, their own agreement be between them and make sure it's not only, you're not doing it because you're railroaded into it and, and you're being pressured and forced into it. Like that's extremely problematic. And so for Stuart, he actually recommends a contract where it's uh, periodically, um, what's the word? Uh, it's periodically like renovated or whatever. So it's like, or re-agreed upon. So the idea there is like, let's say you would have intervals. So you'd be married for, I don't know, two to five years or something like that. And then every two to five years, you'd ask yourself, okay, do we sign another contract? I actually love that idea. That's interesting. Like mm -hmm. renewing the marriage. Yeah, renewing the marriage, right? But it's not like renewing. How do you feel about this? Yeah, but, but it's not like renewing that. vows because you're technically already legally married, but it's actually legitimately renewing like the registration. Um, one thing, so I noticed that we're at about an hour, but I did, I really bad. So here's the thing. I'm reading this book. I haven't finished reading it. I'm actually up to the section on death. Right. And I was just, I wanted to finish, but I didn't quite get there, but I'm actually very curious. Uh, and maybe that's not a, this is not a great way to frame this question, but I'm so curious in the context of death. Uh, what did, what was Simone uh, de Beauvoir's uh, take on authenticity in the face of death or in the context of death. Um, I just, I didn't get to it, but I just really badly wanted to read that chapter. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, she really was, she was terrified of death. Um, she <laughs> was like the thought, like when, remember I mentioned um, that during her teenage years, she was like, oh no, God is dead. Um, well, no, she, I mean, I'm, I don't think she actually said that, but, you know, she realized that that God was, I guess, didn't have any influence on her life. And she's like, oh my God, that's, that if God doesn't exist, then with, a, when I die, it's like, it's like absolute annihilation. It's like nothingness. And, you know, that's that idea really frightened her and it terrified her throughout her whole life and you know sometimes she she went through nihilistic moods where she's like oh I just want to end it now and other times she's like oh my god my death is like I'm racing towards my death and so she struggled a lot to figure out how to how to think about death and you know she wrote a whole book um called all men are mortal Mm. Um, it's a it's quite a heavy novel it's it's perhaps not my favorite but it's one that I keep going back to um, and it's it toys with the idea of immortality like would we should we try and and become immortal like if you were given like an elex like a you know a, what do they call it like a an elixir to to become immortal like wouldn't you drink it and so she does this sort of thought experiment where this guy Fosca like drinks the potion and becomes immortal because he wants to create, you know, heaven on earth or paradise on earth. And he wants to create this like peace and, and a cohesive uh, human society. And, you know, he, he keeps failing time and time again. And she's like, she comes to the decision that, or at least she suggests that, immortality is like an insurance policy like you can keep stuffing up screwing up uh, like over and over again and you'll keep having more chances and the problem is that that like sucks all meaning from our life if there's always going to be another friend always going to be another woman always going to be you know you know another chance then it sort of robs us of urgency to make moments count 
And so her idea is that, you know, we should try and see our mortality as, as a gift, you know, even love our mortality because it infuses each moment with risk, like that we, we might, we might die. It infuses it with, um, uh, you know, a, a, a heaviness or, or an urgency that's like, oh my God, we only have one of this life, you know, even regardless of what you think happens after death. Um, maybe you think there's, you know, go to heaven or afterlife, whatever. It, she's like, it doesn't matter. There's only, we, we probably only have one of this life. So let's seize it. Let's, let's live it. Let's, um, you know, grab seize the moment. The neck. <laughs> seize the moment. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. <Of course. laughs> Yeah. And, and so it reminds me, um, I don't know if you guys ever have uh, seen the Twilight Zone episode called The Hypochondriac. Oh, okay. Did you I see it? I think you've brought it up on the show. I'm, I had to have. Yeah. So, so I mean, long story short, it's this guy who's a hypochondriac and he's afraid that he has like a million different illnesses. And his wife is like, like, dude, like, I don't know what to tell you. And the doctor is like, yo, he's like the healthiest patient I have. So the guy is like harassing his wife and he tells her, what is the, what is the purpose of this? Like, what is the purpose of life if we're going to die? How does this make sense? And she's like, dude, like, leave me alone. I don't know. I don't have these answers. And so essentially, eventually, like the devil kind of like becomes incarnate in some way. And then he gives him, he makes a deal with him. And he says, look, you know, if you want, I could give you internal life for your soul. And the guy's like, uh, yeah, obviously I want that. And so the pretty much the devil says, okay, cool. You Here you go. You can live forever. And so as the kind of episode goes on, the guy becomes a huge, an even bigger asshole than he already is. So he's super narcissistic in the show. So he becomes such an asshole. He's a like, great, I'm invincible. I can go do whatever I want, but it's all boring to him. So there's no risk involved in any of it because he's like, okay, great. Like, you know, who cares? I do this today. I do this tomorrow. I fail today. I win tomorrow. What? It doesn't matter. And then, so eventually he starts like upping the ante. It's like to get a high, right? So, and then he eventually ends up throwing his wife off the roof. And then he's like, oh, wow, still not thrilling enough. Yeah. And then eventually he starts like, uh, what's it called? Like a fire or something. And then the cops come and there's a shootout, but he can't die. So, and then he's like, okay, great. This doesn't do it. And eventually he says to the devil, like, please, man, just take me. I don't care. I, I don't, I'm not afraid of death anymore. I'm not afraid of illnesses. Just, I can't tolerate this anymore. And then he eventually dies in the jail cell. So the devil not only now has his soul, but now the guy doesn't even get immortality and it's like the kind of point is be careful what you wish for yeah mortality isn't all that it seems to be yeah i think Beauvoir would would agree and she you know because heidegger said that the authentic project is being towards death whereas Beauvoir was like no the authentic project is being towards life let's let's seize life seize the moments and you know look at how we're we're creating our lives and orient our, our, ourselves in 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 authentic ways and acknowledging that you know other people are there and taking taking them into account and not being an asshole I love that. <laughs> and then so before before we wrap up, right? So my last question would be something along the lines of if we were to look at Simone de Beauvoir's philosophy and we look at just young girls and people just in general, obviously it doesn't just have to be women, but let's say just specifically if we were going to speak to a younger generation of girls, what is it that what is it that younger women can take away from it? And what do you think is sort of her message if there were one to them? Well, I think the message that I would love for people to take away is to become the poet of your own life. So acknowledge that, you know, there's no fixed self and there's no, because we're, we're complex and, and we're fragmented and, you know, it takes bravery to set goals for ourselves and, and work towards them. And we're going to fail. We're going to make mistakes, but 
you know, those mistakes don't define who we become. Um, and it's important to kind of keep writing that poem. I love that. Beautiful. All right, Alan, final questions before we wrap up. Oh, yes. Uh, if we wanted to follow you, follow your work, and also, of course, buy the book, uh, where could we do that? Um, okay, I've still got my my last uh, galley here. Um, yeah, so it's uh, out August 16 at All Good Bookstores. Uh, so, and I'm also on social media, Twitter and Instagram, Sky underscore Cleary. Awesome. Sky, awesome. thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks, Leon. Thanks, Alan. All right. See ya. Talk to you soon. Take care. Bye. All right. That was awesome. I actually had a few other things I wanted to talk about, but I just want to respect her time. So <laughs> anyway, everyone, if you want to follow us, you can follow us at Seize the Moment Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. We're also on Twitter, Seize underscore podcast. Like, subscribe. Hit the bell on YouTube. On YouTube. And again, thank you so much for watching and see you next time.